This is the Thinking Biblically podcast with Bible teacher Alan Gilman. Alan regards the entire Bible as the only inspired written Word of God. Through his teaching, he seeks to apply all Scripture to every area of life. More information about Alan Gilman's Bible teaching is available at his website, alangilman.ca. This is the Thinking Biblically podcast for Wednesday, March the 27th, 2019. The following is entitled, Half Empty or Half Full? And I'd like to start with a true story. What is that smell I blurted upon entering the house? I don't smell anything, my wife Robin said, in keeping with our well-established rules. I'm the noticer, especially regarding items of the nose. While she, most of the time, gladly lives life in the moment, an extraordinary quality that certainly helped her in the raising of, not to mention homeschooling of, our ten children. We were living in Port Coquitlam, a suburb of Vancouver, British Columbia at the time. We had recently bought our first house, a unique house for a unique family. The previous owner took a small rancher and added an addition to the top and back, just about tripling its original size. The construction of the addition likely played a part in what was causing the mysterious smell. I was sure it was coming from the large pantry under the stairs. Robin graciously cleaned it out, making sure to dispose of any possible culprit and carefully cleaned it out. She thought it was all fine, but not to my nose. It still smells. It wasn't until a friend of ours came over and the smell, I told you, reminded her of dead rodent that we began our quest unto resolution. Thankfully, we knew someone with considerable expertise in determining the location of said deceased critters who discovered the culprit. A dead rat had set up his final resting place in the wall behind the pantry in between the original house and the addition. Since then, I've taken great pride in my ability to literally smell a dead rat. After all, where would the world be without people like me? Most everyone else is cluelessly living life oblivious to the dead rats rotting in the recesses of their lives while I know what's lurking behind the wall. But here's the downside. I tend also to be suspicious, quickly assuming the negative before sufficient evidence comes to light. So different from my wife who tends to assume the positive. In a perfect world, this difference would wonderfully complement each other. But we don't live in a perfect world, and we're not perfect people. I would find myself frustrated with my wife's propensity towards the positive, labeling it as denial. I would get so passionate to both identify and fix problems in our relationship and parenting, while taking her lack of alarm to be unhelpful insensitivity to reality. Remember the dead rat? I remember the time when our eldest daughter was considering moving to Haiti to be a teacher. A small private school had an urgent need and was looking for able souls who were willing to drop what they were doing to help. Since she had spent a few weeks in Haiti years before on an outreach, we were familiar with the challenge of living there. I decided to do some additional research and learned how Haiti is considered to be one of the most dangerous countries in the world. The subject soon came up at our dinner table and I was taken aback by how laissez-faire Robin was taking the possibility of her precious little daughter, who was about 30 at the time, going to what amounted to be a war zone in my estimation. So it was obviously my duty to inform my overly trusting wife of the potential danger, to which she retorted, you're trying to scare me, but it's not going to work. Some of you may not understand how threatening such words of confidence are to someone of our upbringing. In our Jewish culture, worry is a value, no joke. Traditionally, Jewish mothers viewed their worry capacity as efficacious in protecting their children. I know life doesn't really work this way, but deep in my family line is the conviction that someone needs to worry. In our case, the roles were reversed, and so it was. 
Obviously, Mr. Sensitive had to regularly sound the alarm because Mrs. Happy-Go-Lucky would probably one day burn the house down and wouldn't know it. Do note, I'm telling this from my perspective. Robin's version is different. If you're more like me than my wife, you'd probably agree that the world needs more people like us. People who don't take things at face value but are willing to pull back the curtain of the phony exteriors of life in the way Dorothy exposed the Wizard of Oz. But if you're like me, you may not be quick to see the destructive nature of my suspicious, worrisome tendencies. I certainly wasn't. That's why I didn't like thinking too much about Bible verses such as James chapter 1, verse 2, which reads, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. This supposed positive relationship towards hardship didn't seem to jive with my version of life. The joy James speaks of here, I thought, must be some profound sense of inner consolation that sustains the soul in spite of terrible circumstances. It's the anchor of the soul from Hebrews chapter 6, verse 19 that keeps us from completely drifting away while on top of the water where life really happens, we may be going completely crazy. Honest assessment of reality demands not belittling the intensity of our struggles in the real world. James may not agree, however. Some months ago, I decided to look more closely at his use of the word joy. To my surprise, it's the word chara. It's what the shepherds felt having seen the baby Yeshua. It's the same word for rejoicing. It's like the Hebrew word simcha, celebratory joy. Not only does James call for celebration, he calls for all or pure joy. Accepting James's words set me on a course of discovery. Perhaps my approach wasn't so godly after all. Maybe my wife had a point. I was raised to believe that having a cold is likely the first step to an early death. I'm only slightly exaggerating. While she claims when a person gets sick, they feel lousy for a while and then gets better. Doesn't she know the statistics concerning the number of deaths from sickness? Maybe she does because it turns out far more people recover from illness than not. And I hear worrying about it doesn't promote healing. My next biblical discovery also surprised me. I was spending a longer than normal time in my daily Bible reading, pondering over Paul's letter to the Philippians. As I was reading, I'd be drawn back to earlier passages, thus reminding me of the context in which he was writing. As I came to chapter 4, I was very aware by that time that much of Paul's directives to this community was based on his concern over significant, unnecessary personal conflicts they were having. It was with this in mind that I came upon this familiar verse, chapter 4, verse 8. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Up until then, I always thought of these instructions as cautions against impure input along the lines of the old children's song, Be careful, little eyes, what you see. While something like this may be implied by such words, that doesn't seem to be Paul's point. Once I realize that the context of what Paul is writing is relational, then these familiar words take on new and likely more legitimate meaning. Paul is here instructing the Philippians, and by extension us, on how to think about people. I didn't realize how much my suspicious tendencies drew me to think negatively about others. I would leverage what I thought was a biblical understanding of human beings to justify suspicion. I was smelling rats where there were none. This doesn't mean that we should be naive. When problems do exist, they should be addressed. The Bible instructs us on how to deal with serious issues. But how much energy do people like me put into dwelling on negatives that may not exist? When Paul writes to think about things that are true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, and worthy of praise, it's along the lines of considering, or better yet, pondering, 
This is not an exhortation to have nice little thoughts, but to focus one's mind on what is truly good. So much for suspicion and negativity. How can we love God with all our minds if we allow ourselves to dwell upon negative what-ifs? What place can worry have if we accept that God causes all things to work together for good? What have we to fear if God is for us? We who are vessels of the Holy Spirit, who believe in the one who conquered death itself. A close friend of mine whom I worked with for years was concerned about my tendency toward negative thinking. Soon after my contract with his firm ended, I received a mysterious package in the mail. It was a t-shirt with an illustration on the front. There was no indication at the time who sent it, but I eventually figured it out. There was just a brief anonymous note on the packing slip that read, It is what you make of it. The illustration was of a container. At the top end of the container was fire, tombstone, lightning, and a skull. At the bottom were birds singing, sunshine, a rainbow, and hearts. As I showed it to some of my kids, one of them said, It's a glass half full, half empty. She was right. My friend was trying to make a point. One of my justifications for negative thinking has been a supposed commitment to being real. For that reason, I've resisted the principle that life is dependent on our attitude. To me, that always has sounded like make-believe. I'd rather be real and serious than be comforted by fantasy. But as I've looked more closely at the truth of Scripture, it's not about simply having a positive attitude disconnected from reality. It's taking into account who God really is and what He has really done. It's seeing ourselves from the perspective of our relationship with Him. It's how we should respond to life's challenges given His overall purposes in general and for our lives in particular. Therefore, is my glass half full or half empty? Well, what does the Bible say about that? According to King David, it's neither. The man after God's own heart, who went through so much, said it best in Psalm 23 verse 5, My cup overflows. Thank you for listening to the Thinking Biblically podcast with Bible teacher Alan Gilman. More information about Alan Gilman's Bible teaching is available at his website, alangilman.ca. Thank you.